Casey, worship team. Good morning again. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 26 just to give us the sort of the near context because we started this, this passage two weeks ago. Took a brief break last week. This week we're dealing with verses 19 to 26. So if you're taking notes, that's where we're going to be. Uh, part 2, what I'm calling Jesus the Evangelist. So let us hear now the Word of God as inspired by His Spirit, John 4, 1 to 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Joseph, wearied, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you go get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This is our text for today. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let's pray together. Father, I pray you'd open our eyes, unstop our deaf ears to see great things from your word. 
God, I pray again you'd rivet our hearts, our minds on this text of Scripture, your holy word. And Lord, you would work in us what you alone can do to make us more like Jesus today. We would evangelize, we'd have heart, a heart for the lost, just like our Lord did here. Lord, I pray that you would take this text down and bind it to our hearts. If there be those here who do not know you, I pray you'd begin at work in them, drawing them, convicting them of sin and unrighteousness, drawing them irresistibly, drawing them effectually to yourself, unto salvation, that they would no longer live for their own glory, which is vain glory, but live for your glory. You give them eternal life so that no one snatch them out of your hands, God. Lord, we love you and praise you and, and thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I think you know the answer to the question I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask them anyway because it's a good place to start. You know, I love the Socratic method, so here we go. Does it matter precisely, I mean with precision, okay, I think precision here. Does it, mean, does it matter what we believe about God, who he is, what he has done, what he has made? Does it matter what we believe about how we should worship God? I mean, can't we just come with hearts that are sincere and worship him in any old way we please? Because, hey, at least we're worshiping, right? At least we're at church. Is it okay just to kind of be here, sort of in this building and sit here and either be kind of a connoisseur of sermons or just kind of soak it in, whatever's sung, whatever's said, and kind of mindlessly do this? Isn't that, is that okay? What about other religions? Is there enough truth in other religions just to kind of get us by and get us in the kingdom of God? I mean, you know, the conventional wisdom in our culture today says that all religions, I mean, Judaism and Islam and uh, Christianity and all the others, they're just merely different paths to the same God. So why are we worried, we evangelicals, we Southern Baptists, worried over much about God and the specifics of God? Well, these are vital questions. They're questions that we have to answer, of course, in every age, and we have to answer for ourselves. And these are questions that should arise and will arise in our minds as the Lord's encounter with the woman at the well. Now, you remember last week, we, or two weeks ago, we began uh, with Jesus' this encounter with a Samaritan woman. And as we read here, Samaritans and, and, and the Jews have nothing to do with each other. They despise each other. I said it's kind of like Ukraine and the Russians. It's a little bit like that. Or like the Jews and the Germans and uh, back during the, the Third Reich. So they just despise each other. So for Jesus to reveal himself and to sit down and talk with a Samaritan woman was somewhat scandalous to the religious proletariat of the day. It would have been scandalous to the culture. And yet Jesus reveals himself to her, as we're going to see today. Jesus knows her. Jesus, of course, fully man and yes, and also fully God, knows that she has had five husbands and she is currently shacking up with a man who is not her husband. And he knows this. And we're going to see, uh, I think next week, that she's like, this man told me everything that I've ever done. Can you imagine? Jesus saying, you know, I know where you've been. I know what you were doing last night. And he tells you. And it wasn't. You, know, it was, you, you weren't doing your Sunday school lesson, in other words. Imagine what, how this must have landed on her. So Jesus tells her everything she's ever done, that she's, in, in many ways, I think I said this two weeks ago, she's what Paul, how he refers to himself as, I am the chief among sinners, 
really and truly, she is kind of the chief of sinners. And that's kind of why, why we get these details about the, the scandalous living she's participated in. Because this wasn't a quickie divorce culture, right? This isn't like now. You just kind of go down and you hire the heavy hitter and he gets you out of the marriage, you know, and you marry someone else. Kind of like, sort of like, uh, you know, just um, uh, dating, the, you know, uh, ramped up dating. That's kind of what marriage is like now. It wasn't like that in this culture. Very different. And so we arrive here in verse 19 where she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. I mean, she's got to say something, right? He just said, you're doing this. This is who you are. And she's like, I mean, what would you say? I, man, you really know your stuff. And that's really kind of what she's saying. Because right now she doesn't know really what to make of Jesus. And in here we learn three vital facts about salvation. Three, two facts about God, one about Jesus that are vital to her salvation as he evangelizes her very subtly. Very graciously, and we talked about that two weeks ago. But the first one is this. We see this in how Jesus confronts her false understanding of God. And this gets to the first question I asked. Jesus confronts her false understanding of God. There are lots of understandings of God out there, and you have to be ready as a Christian to know God's Word to be able to confront the false understandings of God, I would argue. And I think this text argues powerfully. But here in this encounter, it's almost, it almost seems that the woman at the well just kind of wants to change the subject. And I would too if Jesus said, you know, I know that you're living in sin. Hey, what's for lunch? Right? <laughs> we need to, can we meet the Methodist to the chicken? You know, let's talk about something else. What about the football game? Did you see Tennessee and Georgia last night? Man, that was a bloodbath. And we're not going to get into that just yet, maybe in a few weeks, Doug. But uh, she wants to change the subject. It's almost like that, isn't it? To religion. Hmm. She says, I perceive that your prophet, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then Jesus, verse 22, says, woman, intriguing. And this is not like we say, woman, this is not the way to address your wife or your, you know, your significant other guys. Okay, that's not giving you permission for that. This is not like complementarianism going awry or something like that. It's a, it's a term of respect. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And you're like, wait a minute, we're talking about her sin. Why all this talk about mountains? Now, I love mountains. I'm from the mountains. But they're talking about mountains in Jerusalem. Isn't this kind of obfuscating uh, what we're talking about, your sin here? Why do they seem to be changing the subject? But Jesus isn't changing the subject at all. Now, people you encounter, lost people, they're going to try to change the subject. You can find ways to get right back to the subject, stay right on the gospel. And Jesus does it expertly here, right? He's saying he's not changing the subject at all. He's leading her right to salvation. Look, here's the background. Here's, why, here's what's behind the talk about the mountains in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, after Israel had crossed into the promised land, in accordance with God's instructions given through Moses, half the tribes... Of Israel formed on Mount Gerizim, and the other half formed on the adjacent mountain, Mount Ebal. From Mount Gerizim, in Deuteronomy 28, 2 to 6, we're going to look at this during the Lord's Supper, we read the blessings for obedience. God says, if you obey my word, you're going you're to flourish, and here's how you're going to flourish. From Mount Ebal... Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 19, just a few verses later. And this begins back in Deuteronomy 27, by the way, 11 to 13. The curses were read by the six tribes there. Here, the curses for sin, for disobedience. And so there were, there were two choices facing Israel in the promised land. On which mountain were they, these people to worship? On Mount Gerizim, which is this, this sort of mountain of blessing? 
of Mount Ebal, which talks about curse, cursing for sin and how, you know, what, what happens when we go astray, which Israel, of course, immediately is going to do what? They worship a golden calf. They're going to go astray. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. This, our wandering is not new, right? But there's a, where are we going to build? Where are we going to build the altar? Which mountain? Where the people, where are we going to make sacrifices and worship God? We're going to, let's, let's do it on Mount Gerizim, the context of obedience. So that's good news, right, man? That's, that's positive. That's a positive message. You heard preachers with positive messages. That's what the whole thing is, right? We've got a positive message for you. Hmm. We've talked about that in the past. Were they to worship God on Mount Ebal in the context of the disobedience and say, no, not so much. Let's stay with something positive, right? You see how they would think. In other words, would they come to God by works, by the good things they do, or by the grace that they need? Which is it? Do you come saying, I'm a pretty good chap or chapette, whatever you are, and I don't need God's grace. It's my works that, that have got me into the kingdom and keep me in the kingdom. Or is it, we need your grace. I think you know that. You're pretty savvy here. We talk about this every Sunday. Just about, well, every Sunday after all, right? Deuteronomy 27, 4 and 5 gives the answer. He says, on Mount Ebal you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. On this mountain which basically celebrates what's going to happen, <laughs> uh, the, the, the consequences of their disobedience. and it's going to, They're going to fall right into it. And you can kind of say, like, we're not going to do that. They're going to do that. They can't help themselves because of their depraved hearts, can they? So why on Mount Ebal were the curses announced? Well, because salvation is by grace and not by works. That's the point, I think. Sinners cannot seek salvation on Mount Gerizim because they've already broken God's law. You are not a lawkeeper, you are a lawbreaker. And this is why you need Mount Ebal. God has mercifully opened a door of grace on Mount Ebal. Again, it's kind of negative. We don't look at that, do we? Those are pretty good people. But he's graciously opened a door on Mount Ebal by the blood of Christ. Why? Well, because Christ bore the curse. These are cursings for disobedience. Who bore the curse? We need a curse bearer, don't we? Right there, right in Deuteronomy, right in the Pentateuch, we have, we need a curse bearer. Of course, Genesis 3, we know, cursed are you, we need a curse bearer. Jesus bore the curse. That's where we're going to worship, and that's Jesus' point. You don't understand what you worship. And here we have a clash between true religion and false religion, and religion that's just kind of barely wide of the mark, is it? It's not like, you know... Worshipping UFOs shaped like Elvis or something like that, which someone I knew years ago in journalism that I met, they worshipped a UFO. Uh, they were waiting on a UFO shaped like Elvis to come spirit them away to heaven. I kid you not, I couldn't make that up. <laughs> no, no, this isn't like that. It's kind of wide of the mark. Because we love, we love works, don't we? I mean, here's the pertinent question Jesus was driving at. What distinguishes true religion from false religion? That's what he's confronting her with here. Of course, the classic answer is found in Jesus' reply to her, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. They don't know Jesus. That's what they don't know. And the people you encounter, religious though they may be, they don't know Jesus. Though they may be religious, they may worship, they worship what they do not know. You worship what you know if you're in Christ. They know Jesus. Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch as their scriptures. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. So you have the Pentateuch, you have the first five books, and that's it. 
They rejected the rest of the scripture. So they couldn't know Jesus. Why? Because it takes all of it, all the prophets, the priests, the kings, the, uh, all the sacrifice, the sacrificial system points to whom? To Christ. Fulfilled in Christ. Not because, you know, I used to really understand how to put the Bible together years ago. I used to read through the Bible. I get to Leviticus. I was going to read the Bible this year at Leviticus, like March. It's over. My whole program's blown out of the water. My Bible would just kind of lay there. And I'd think, I'd start to get it. I was in college. I'd think, no, no, Leviticus. <laughs> I can't, I'm going to read Leviticus. <laughs> I can't, I don't understand that. I didn't realize, nobody told me, read Leviticus and Hebrews at the same time. You'll get Leviticus, right? And see, this is, they, the, the, the Samaritans, just five books, that's it. They, they missed out on Jesus. Because it's all about, as we say here all the time, it's all about him. They did not accept, they rejected the writings and the prophets. So Jesus means that since you don't accept the entire Old Testament as the breathed out word of God, then you don't worship the true God because you don't know the true God. And this kind of supplies the answer to the question I began with, doesn't it? You don't know the true God. Oh, you know something about God or you know, about, you just know something about the true God, but you, you don't know the true God, not in his fullness. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. In other words, we worship God as he has revealed himself in the entire Old Testament scriptures. He's revealed himself through the people of Israel, the Jews, right? Salvation comes through that line. The true Israel who wants to come, that all the Old Testament points to, that's how we put the Bible together, and they missed him. Like the Pharisees, like, oh, you're very religious, Jesus said. But you've missed, you read the Old Testament thinking there's salvation, but you've missed it because you've missed out on the fact that the Old Testament speaks of me. This is what happens, and you don't know how to put your Bible together. Hopefully this will make you scurry to read the whole Bible. <laughs> I want to pick up in Leviticus, and I'm going to, I'm going to finish that, 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 that plan, right? I mean, Jesus says we worship what we don't know. I mean, we worship, you, you, we, salvation is from the Jews. God has revealed himself to, in his entirety to uh, the, in the Old Testament scriptures. We know that salvation comes through the instrumentality of the Jews because the entire Old Testament teaches that. They're the instrument, right? They're the first Israel. They're Israel. But the true Israel, the son, my son Israel, is Jesus, right? Here's the bottom line. The Samaritan's religion was false because they were ignorant of the true God. They're worshiping some God, a partial kind of deity, but they were ignorant of the true God. Their ideas of God and salvation without the truth of God were wrong. It was truncated. It was sort of a nascent form. They, they just stopped short. And so the lesson for Israel was that salvation is not by works but by grace. And the Samaritan woman refers to Mount Gerizim when she says in verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Gerizim. Because they did. The Samaritans had long worshipped on Mount Gerizim. They did not worship on Mount Ebal. They built a temple for worship on Mount Gerizim. And their Bible changed Deuteronomy 27.4 to name Mount Gerizim as the place where the altar was to be built. So they edited scripture at that point. And edited in false doctrine. Edited out orthodoxy. Edited in heterodoxy. So they built the altar and the church there and anger of the Jews so that in uh, 128 B.C., one of the Jewish rulers destroyed the temple there because they were so angered at the false worship that went on there. I mean, one thing we learned from this that is important is we must beware of, you hear me say this a lot, but external religion. 
goes, it's very easy for us to come here and kind of do our thing, right? We live in what I call the sort of quasi-south, right? We're not in the deep south, really. I don't think we are. You may think we are. If you are, you're from, you're from New York, <laughs> right, Pastor Clay. Uh, we're kind of the quasi-south, so we're close enough to the belt, uh, the Bible belt that we, you know, we, we, we can do this. We can just have a religion that's mere extern, externalities. I mean, I meet people all the time who go to church here in Louisville. When we do evangelism in the park, what, what are we here? Well, I go to X church. There's a certain church that has lots of people. Praise God for them, by the way. But they say, we go there. Uh, and you say, well, how often do you go? Well, you know, Easter and Christmas, we go there. That's our church. They have an external religion. Their heart hasn't been changed. Uh, they, they, they're, they're working their way to heaven. They're making God happy with just that Easter and Christmas appearance. Or maybe we take the whole family. We wear suits, you know. We go down here to... Get on some our Sunday best. It's just external religion. It will do us no good. It only condemns us. We can, we can do that with the best of them, can't we? When we come here and just, we're not into this. External religion. We cannot worship God as we see Him or as we want to imagine Him. I saw something the other day, Reimagining God Conference 2022. I was afraid to even look at what Reimagining God was going to tell me. Here's what we do know. The Ligonier's State of Theology, they put out a survey they put out every couple of years, 2020, revealed just some couple of things here. When 60% say beliefs about religion and God are a matter of personal choice and not objective truth. It's in the subject, it's when I think about it, not objective truth. 60%. I'm surprised it's not higher. And it probably is higher in reality. It's probably like 80 or 90%. You'll meet Southern Baptists who... Uh, it's, it's really about what they think about God more than it's what God has revealed about himself to us. Because they don't want to take the time to read the word. That takes work. 46% say that everybody sins a little, but man is mostly good by nature. They never encountered the holy God that Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, did they? The holiness, the, the white, hot, absolute holiness of God that reveals us as lost and undone. We say, we cry out, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I minister among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the God, the God of glory. That's not the God they're rejecting, is it? That's not the God, God as, under, as, as Scripture communicates Him to us. 42% say God accepts the worship of all religions. Mm. Jesus would take issue with that from this text, right? All religions. 52%. Jesus was a great teacher. We love Jesus. Jesus is just all right with me, but he's not God. I've had that discussion with lots and lots of people in the church. Sunday school teacher, Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, maybe 10 years ago, and I had a debate over that in my hometown in Georgia said, so, oh, he's a good man. He's a, a wonderful moral example, but he's not God. Are you crazy? Man, Sunday school teacher, Southern Baptist Church. This is not someone you meet in Walmart and you evangelize, right? We understand that. Only worshiping the living God as he has revealed himself in Scripture and sacred writ will save you. Salvation is from the Jews because it's in the entire Bible. It's by grace alone and not by works. The curse of Mount Ebal must be dealt with before we can experience the blessings of Mount Gerizim. That's how this works. That's what the Bible teaches. 
So we must worship God as he has revealed himself in the sacred scripture. The next truth he teaches her that we must know is Jesus corrects her faulty approach to God. Okay, so here's the God of the Bible. How do we approach him? If he's holy and righteous and just and infinite in beauty, infinite majesty, infinite glory, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, meticulously sovereign, how do we approach him? Carefully. To summarize. <laughs> I could just skip this one. I could, I could do it right there. Carefully and biblically. Right? Because a new era for worship, Jesus is basically saying has come with the coming of, 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 of Christ. Worship is no longer merely formal and external. Well, first of all, what does it mean to worship in spirit? Let's take, take these in order. Worship in spirit. This is spiritual worship. It's really that simple. We need to know advanced Greek grammar to understand this. Spiritual worship. In other words, worshiping in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, which is quite different from old covenant worship that was regulated by temporary provisions of the law, especially the separation of Jews and Gentiles. It came to the Jews, right? Requirement of temple worship in Jerusalem required to be at a certain place. Jesus is saying, no, it's very different now. The veil of the temple is going to be torn in two and you can come in through me. That's what he's going to say here without saying it. The ceremonial and the sacrificial aspects of the law were not false, but they were temporary and they were provisional. That'll help you with reading through Leviticus. You go, ah, all the blood and guts, temporal, pointing to the one sacrifice that was to come, right? So just put that in the back of your head, just plow right through there, and it's, you'll see how glorious it is, right? All the animal sacrifices, the food offerings, the ceremonies, the holy days, they were intended to point to the full and final sacrifice who would come, who would make us righteous in a way that all the animal sacrifices the writer of Hebrews tells us could never do. Never do. The blood of bulls and goats, they don't do much for us. Not just when you like reading about it, but when you're sacrificing it. I'm glad. <laughs> Thankful that the full and final sacrifices come. Now both Jew and Gentile may come and drink freely of the water of life that Jesus said, uh, that's who I am, I'm the water of life, it's me. And Jew and Gentile, all people, all kinds of people, every tribe and tongue and nation, red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight, they all may come to him. All. The invitation as we give it here, as Jesus gives it, is whosoever will may come. That's the invitation every week here at Christ Fellowship Church. Whosoever will may come. Both Jew and Gentile. I mean, the cross of Christ, of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is going in John's gospel, has removed the barrier between Jew and Gentiles, broken down the dividing wall. In the coming of Messiah, followers of Christ may now worship God directly through the Savior without need of all of these externalities. They worship Him in spirit as those who've been indwelt by the Spirit. Because God, if you are in Christ, God has unzipped you and climbed inside you in the person of his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead is now living in you to transform you from one level of glory to another. He's working in you. You have the Spirit of God for that bad encounter with your boss, for those, that, that sin that just will not die. You have the Spirit of God living in you for that. All the resources you need to worship God in spirit. And as we're going to see in, in truth in just a moment, we go to him directly. We don't need a temple of any kind. This is why the, the, the Pharisees were so scandalized when Jesus, back remember back in John 2, Jesus said, 
referring to himself as a temple, said, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up again. Or destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And they said, what? It took 42 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? He's talking about himself. We come to God through him. He's the temple. We're worshiping this morning the temple. It's Christ. This is brand new. That's why he's telling the Samaritan woman. She's trying to change the subject. You see how she's leading, he's leading her down the path to the gospel very subtly, but also very profoundly. Jesus is now the object of worship because he is the full and final sacrifice to whom all the sacrifices of the old covenant point and find their culmination. They find their fulfillment. And Jesus is telling this woman that God's people worship by the indwelling spirit. So you see the necessity of spiritual worship, which means we don't merely come here doing church every week. If that's our approach to worship every Sunday, we might as well stay home. Say, I've just got to go and do my thing. You know, I've heard people say, go do my God thing. If that's why you're here, God is not proud of you. You are putting yourself more under his condemnation than you were if you would have stayed home, go on the golf course. Because you're hearing the truth of God. You're hearing the gospel of God. And you'll be, you'll be held accountable for it, right? And this is a living book. It's going to have some effect on it. It will either harden you more. It will soften you. It will draw you by, by the power of the Spirit. It's having an effect right now. And whether you know it or not, you may be thinking about the upcoming NFL season. And I think about that sometimes too. Not while I'm preaching. If that's what we have on our minds today, just uh, we, we, we do just as want to stay home because worship is worship in the Spirit. Meaning we're here, our faculties are here because the Spirit indwells us. It's genuine worship. What does it mean to worship God in truth? Well, at least three things. One, we must approach God wholeheartedly and truthfully. We must approach Him opposite of what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 18 or 15. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. That's what I mean. If you're here this morning and you're just here... You're worshiping him in vain. That's what the Puritans called will worship. They're just worshiping him in vain. Your, your, your lips, you're mouthing the hymns, but your heart is somewhere else. And that's sin. No worship is, is true worship unless there is an honesty of heart on the part of the worshiper. You're singing these songs, you're engaging, you're, yes, you're listening to the sermon, whether I'm preaching or Pastor Doug or Pastor Clay or somebody else, one of the interns, you're, you're, you're listening. He knows everything about us. The one with the well learned this, right? He knows everything about us. Every thought, every heart motive. It's kind of frightening sometimes, isn't it? So we cannot pretend to worship God this morning or any morning. Our hearts are open books before God. We need to know that. He knows when our hearts are near Him, and He knows our hearts are far from Him. If we claim the name of Christ, that should, that should chasten us. We, it means we should come, we, on Saturday night, maybe we should prepare, prepare our hearts to come to worship. We should maybe have a time of family devotion, or we just go to bed early and, and read our Bibles and pray, and we pray for the pastors, and we, we read the text for tomorrow, something like that. And I need to hear that too. And I've got, I'm the one usually preaching on Sunday morning. We've got to come with our hearts prepared on Sunday morning. Maybe it means we do different things. I don't usually, uh, even if I, have, if I have Georgia football tickets on Saturday, I'm not usually preaching on Sunday because I just can't get prepared in my heart to go do that thing and then come do this thing. And I don't see that to sound super pious. I just can't do it. Come in here and, you know, just can't, I, I really can't. Not adequately. 
And that is just as important. My, the preparation of my heart is just as important as the preparation of the text throughout the week. That good. And it goes on all week. Are you coming prepared to worship him with hearts that are lit ablaze by the truth, that you're captive to the truth of Scripture as we sing it and pray it and read it and, and as that is preached? Secondly, second thing it means to worship the truth, we must worship in accord with God's revelation in the Bible. We don't worship God just any old way. This is what sometimes is called the regulative principle of worship. And I cherish that doctrine. That's a good Baptist doctrine. I wrote an article about that. You can find it online. Don't do it right now. Some other time. <laughs> it's a Baptist doctrine. We've lost that altogether. It simply means this. Scripture regulates worship. We don't see it in the Bible. We don't do it in worship. Never, never, never. The regulated principle. We seek to follow that here at Christ Fellowship as much as, as faithful as we can. The Second London Confession of 1689, I put this up here for your viewing pleasure. Chapter 22, paragraph 1 says this. It says it well. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. In other words, you look out there, you know there's a God. He is just and good and does good to all. And is therefore, because that's true, he is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. And here's what I'm looking for. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. In other words, God knows best how he wants to be and specs to be worshiped. We can't just make that up. And so... And so limited by his own revealed will, the scriptures, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations, first two, first two commandments, or any other way not prescribed in the holy scriptures. Think about this. In the latter chapters of Exodus, God tells them how to... How to uh, how to put together the tent of meeting down to the color of the thread used and to sew together the curtains and to sew together the priest's robes. That's how picky God is about how he expects to be worshipped. He's in the details. Now, we don't need that certain kind of fabric on our chairs this morning. It's not prescribed in the New Testament, right? But he, ex he tells us how to, he expects to be worshipped. What happens when we worship God in novel and unbiblical ways, well, I think a good place to look is Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. And just listen to this. The story of Nadab and Abihu. Let this chasten us. Let this send us to adopt this principle, the regulated principle of worship. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire, and some translations call it strange fire, before the Lord, which God had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Beloved, it can be dangerous to worship God in a way that is erroneous and not prescribed by Scripture. Dangerous. Do you see that? Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified. Among those who are near me. He's saying, they're far from me. But among those who are near me, I'll be sanctified by those people and those people alone. And before all the people, I'll be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Your kids are, are, are vaporized because they worship God in a way that he's not prescribed. He held his peace. What could he say? What could he say? 
And yet we worship God in all kinds of novel ways in church today. We try to outdo each other, I think, sometimes among evangelicals. One time years ago when I was a seminary, I candidated a church south of here. Church shall, uh, shall, shall name the church to protect the guilty. When I walked in the church to meet with the search committee, I saw a giant painting of three clowns. This is what greeted me when I walked in the church. Three clowns. And I said to myself, I'm going to mark that in my mind. Those clowns are important because their picture, they didn't have a picture of the California Jesus, like you have in a lot of Southern Baptist churches out there, you know, which I'd have understood the clowns. I said, That's important to these. There's something about that I need to get behind. And it was the clowns that led to my no longer being a candidate to be the pastor of that church because of this. Because they had Clown Day. The clowns handled the evangelism. They went out, they showed me a video. It was very creepy. And I told them, this is very creepy. And they thought I was crazy. And they even asked me to write a position paper about it. I said, I, write a position paper? It should just be clear. Nadab and Abihu, they were clowns in the presence of God. And he vaporized them. They're gone. They had mime night. I ask about that. They do. It's like a bad day at the Shriners for you to go. And they're driving on the little cars with the big shoes, you know. And, and they did it. They really did this. You know, I could not make this up. I've written a book about this for somewhere. It's a long time. I write about everything, you know. So, yeah. This is not taking God seriously. That's a joke. It's a joke. And if we want God to write uh, um, Ichabod above the door of our church, we'll worship God any way we choose, Right? Just any old way. We just come. Sincerely, the sincere clowns, they told me, we want to be known as the clown church. I said, I'm not going to. There's no way. I am done. The clown church. So I'm the only clown who's allowed to be. <laughs> I'm going to be the clown at this church, you know, so it might be a copyright rule or something here, but no. And that's a real life example. I saw with my own eyes. I don't exaggerate one bit. Why? Because... And don't miss this. God is the seeker. We forget who's in charge of who we're worshiping. God is the seeker. He's seeking those to worship him in this way. God is the seeker. The Father is doing this. He's seeking such people to worship him. Don't miss it. Jesus doesn't mean that Father's merely hoping to recruit a few good volunteers who will worship him this way. We're going to go out and find some good people, maybe a few clowns, maybe a few straight people. I don't know. We're going to worship me. No, no, no. He's seeking those who worship. He's seeking. These are his elect Seeking here is saving. He's seeking them, he's saving them. If he seeks you, he will save you. You're not going to go unsought. God is seeking his elect who will most certainly come to him as we will see in John 6. And they will worship him in spirit and in truth. Those people and those people alone. Where you see clown worship, you see something that is sub-Christian and ungodly and should be renounced. And every way we can renounce it and avoid it. It's God who always takes the initiative in salvation. That's the God we seek. It's God who seeks sinners, saves them entirely by his grace. It's never man. Strictly speaking, there are no seekers. Not really. Man is seeking something. Man does sense an emptiness down inside. We encounter that, don't we? But apart from a sovereign, unilateral work of God's grace through the convicting and drawing power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel that leads him to conferring the new birth we encountered back in chapter 3, no mortal man ever seeks the one true living God of Scripture. He will seek a God, but a God made in his own image. Ask people to describe God out there. They'll describe someone a lot like themselves. 
John's going to say something very similar in John 6, 44. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's seeking them. Third, third thing this means, we must worship God Christocentrically. We come here, I'm just going to leave it at this, in the, in the name of time. We come here to worship Christ, and everything we do must be Christ-centered. Because we are Christians. Christians. Sometimes you go, I went to church one time, they were doing seven ways to invest your money, over seven part series and preaching. I could got that at a, at a Mormon temple probably. Maybe not. They take, they take their message more seriously than that. So we preach Christ from the Bible. It's about Christ. Or we're, we really have no message. That's why Spurgeon said, take a text, young pastor, and as soon as possible make a beeline to the cross because only the cross can do helpless sinners good. Everything we do is going to be Christocentric here. And it is. And praise God for that. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for Casey. I'm thankful for Joe and John David before him. They all sought to be Christocentric. We're just fixated on Christ. As John Piper puts it, we're entranced with Christ. A Christ-entranced life. That's what we're after here. So ultimately, what is the truth? Who is the truth and whom we must? We may and must worship God. Jesus tells her here my third and last point as we come to, toward the end here. And Begin preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper today, which we'll go kind of right into. Jesus conveys to her that the Messiah and salvation have come. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said, the, wo the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak am he. Man, is that an audacious statement? I who speak to you, I'm him. I am the God of the universe. I am Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of all those things you read in the first five books of the Bible. And all those things in the other books you didn't read. He's coming. At some point, she seems to be saying. I mean, Jesus directs this woman to the future. Which is now. In, in, in this time. The Samaritans are expecting the Messiah. They were. That messianic expectation. But her knowledge of when is vague. Said he will, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Whatever that is. Might be today. Might be tomorrow. Might be a thousand years. She, she didn't know. She expects he will come, but she knows not when. So she can put off that faith commitment until the Messiah comes. You see, that's kind of what she's doing. She's putting, well, I can wait. I get, you, I get what you're saying here about the mountains and all that stuff. It's great. But, you know, it, we don't know. He'll probably heal here sometime. We'll, we'll get right with God. And you may be saying that today. Say, you know what? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus is here. I'll have another day. You're not promised another day. And I'm not either. And he's coming back again. Are you going to be ready for that? What if he comes today? It could be any time. So we well, don't try to scare me into the kingdom. Well, there should be a fear of there's no fear of God before the eyes of those who hate God. There should be a fear of God before our eyes. And we should think about that, about our death. We, uh, as you know, a month ago, uh, I, I preached my brother's funeral. He died suddenly one month ago. And right over behind his tombstone, I could see a young man named Brent Grizzle. And I remember Brent. It's my hometown, 24 years old. On his way home from work in 1998, he was asleep in the truck. The truck he was in went off, the, careened off the mountain, and he died instantly. I remember telling my kids, you see that? That's a young person. We're not promised tomorrow, are we? Not at all. And she's putting it off here. Eh, you know, I think that's kind of what she's doing. Well, you know, we don't know when he's coming. He'll, he'll get around to coming. He says, he's here. He says, ego a me. 
in Greek, I am. In Hebrew, what he says about God saying, I am, I am, is here. That's what this is literally translated. I am. I am here. I am he. The translator has added the he. I am. Jesus says the very same thing Jehovah God said in the Old Testament. I am. And, of course, this is the greatest of all titles for Jesus Christ. I am here. And, of course, because he was here then, he's here now. If you're putting, off, putting him off, you're putting him off now. The Savior who has come. This is the name which is above all names, and he's here. And to whom did he reveal it? Let's not forget. Who is this he's talking to? Is this a worldwide political leader? No. Is this a famous entertainer? No. Is this a world-class athlete? Is this a, a major league baseball player, an NFL player? Is this? No. Is this some erudite, highly trained, highly degreed scholar, even a theologian? Is that who he's revealing himself to? No. You know, no. No, he reveals himself as Messiah to a woman who had five husbands and was currently shacking up with a man, not her husband. And a filthy Samaritan, in the eyes of the Jews, to boot. That's who he revealed himself to. You know why he revealed himself to her? Because that's us. That's who we are. We need to come down off of our moral high horses. This is who we are. Jesus only saves one category of people, sinners. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not the healthy need a doctor, but the sick. You may think you're healthy, and you may think you'll live another day, but you may not. And you may not be healthy this morning. But I am has come, and he's revealed himself to sinners, the chief of sinners like us. This is good news. I mean, the proclamation is the best news ever told. Why? Because it tells us that whatever a person's life may have been, whatever your past is, whatever you've done in the past, whatever you're doing right now, there's hope. There's hope for you. There's remedy for you in Christ. Flee to him today. No matter what you've done, you cannot send yourself away from his grace. No, sin is, his grace is greater as we love to sing than all our sin, Right? His blood can wash you, make the vilest sinner clean. I mean, think of the Samaritan woman here, the, the penitent thief at Calvary. Think of the Philippian jailer, the tax collector, Zacchaeus. All patterns of God's readiness to show mercy and to confer full and immediate pardon. If you're here this morning, you say, I'm just, I'm just too bad, you don't know what I've done. He knows what you've done. He knew what she had done, and he's ready to confer full pardon. Because he bore your guilt at Calvary, he's able to say, not guilty. When you come by faith to him, not guilty. Let the, let the guilty sinner go free, because I have borne his guilt. You're justified by faith in him. The judge can say, not guilty. Because his righteousness pleads for you. The righteousness you need to get in heaven, it pleads for you. It pleads for me. And I'm pleading with you this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day, is the day of salvation. Do not delay. We're not promised one more day. Beloved, I beg you on behalf of Christ, on authority of this book, on the authority of Scripture, flee to him today. Run to him in, in repentance from your sins, in faith in him, that he is who he claimed to be. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by him. He is the one way for all people, for all time. He is the Messiah. Ego Amy, I am he. Flee to him today. Repent of your sins. He's ready. He stands ready to forgive you. He stands ready to redeem you. He has bought you back with the precious blood of himself. 
the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God, John said, that takes away the sins of the world. I mean, in the eyes of the world, the woman at the well was a sinner who was beyond cure. But there is none so bad who are beyond the cure of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. There's hope. We live in a world that there's no hope in this world, is there? But there's hope in Jesus. He's our only hope, in fact. What's the hope for the United States of America? It's Christ. What's the hope for Joe Biden? Jesus Christ. What's the hope for, for Donald Trump? Or Ronald Reagan? He's dead. <laughs> what was his hope? What is the hope of any president, of any, of any stripe who's ever lived? Jesus Christ. It's our only hope for everybody, for every sinner. None so bad they can, they're beyond the cure of God's grace. His grace is greater than our sin. J.C. Rowell said, Christ is as willing to receive you as he is almighty to save. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones put, uh, put it this way, in pleading with sinners, pleading with lost people, like I'm doing right now with you. If you're lost, I know some of you. There's someone who's lost. I know there are or is. Lloyd-Jones said, the God who's made everything, who sustains everything, who owns everything, who controls everything, is interested in you and is concerned about you. This is the staggering thing. The gospel that tells you tonight, whoever you are and whatever you are, whatever your past may have been, how filled with failures and disgraces and shame, it does not matter. God is interested in you. And God is able to redeem you. He said, he's preaching to his church on a Sunday evening. He said, there are, there are people in this congregation, by the way, this is three weeks before he was no more, 1968, he'd be done at, at Westminster uh, Tabernacle in just three weeks. He didn't know it. There are people in this congregation tonight who were not Christians 12 months ago. They did not expect 12 months ago that this mighty thing was going to happen to them. Oh, my dear friend, the possibility is always there. The angels are around us, and God is over all, and he sees you and knows you. Do not listen to pessimism, the hopelessness, and the despair of this materialistic age. Believe in this supernatural miraculous divine gospel and that is my plea to you this morning if you do not know him you don't know that you know that you know you're presuming on some kind of external religion or growing up in a pastor's home or a southern baptist home or a presbyterian home or maybe you know the five points of calvinism i don't know what it is you know but do you know him are you in a relationship with him are you in christ the messiah has come and he's coming again are you ready to meet him if he came to you this morning and sat down as he did the woman of the well and he looked into your heart, what would he see? What would he see when he looked at you? I mean, really and truly, uh, this, is, this is an x-ray uh, uh, to defeat all x-rays. I can't see it. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I can't see it. He can see it. What would he see? What do you need to repent of? What, what sin do you need to put to death? What condition would your soul greet him no matter what you've done, all you call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We have this promise on the authority of Scripture. What about you and your evangelism? Do you take time for people like the woman at the well? You see people, they've had five husbands and they're living in the, shacked up with the man who's not only the husband. Do you take time for them? Do you say, you know what? I'm kind of this bubble and I kind of like the bubble and we're just going to let them pass on by. That is a person made in God's image who has worth and dignity, who's lost and needs Christ. So why do they act the way they do? Well, because they're lost. I tell my kids this all the time. Why does so-and-so act this way? They're lost. Why does so-and-so, why is there LGBTQ? Because they need Jesus. 
We need to ridicule people like that. No, we need to pray for them and, and share the gospel with them. And this is the hope they need, the hope we have uh, that's come to us. People who just are ident identified by the politics. Do we argue with them, debate them on Twitter all the time? No, we, they need Jesus because that's their identity. And their identity is not in Christ. It's in being a Democrat, Republican, Independent, Tea Party, whatever it is. And you know them. There are lots of them. You may be one of them. But do you take time for people like that? Do you approach them with meekness and fear? First Peter 3.15, remember? Always be ready to give an account, but we do it with meekness and fear. Do you come to them graciously as Jesus did her? He was very tender with her. He gently confronted and corrected her unbiblical conceptions about God. Are you ready to do that? Or do the Jehovah's Witnesses come? You're afraid to answer them because they will eat your lunch. Because they know their stuff. Do you know your stuff? About God? About his word? Do you know? They know their stuff. The Mormons, they know their stuff. Believe me. I engage them. It's impressive. They put us to shame, don't they? In biblical knowledge, we just, boy, we're poverty-stricken when it comes to that. Are you ready to tell them that Messiah is now here and who he is and the God, about God the Father? Do you realize that every single one of you is a position of the one with the well at one time? But look at you now. And I say this to you all the time because I don't want you to forget. Because Peter said, we're a forgetful people. I stir your mind up by way of reminder because we forget. We have, we have dementia of grace. <laughs> we don't remember. There's a time when you were in her shoes, but you're not today. Because his grace broke through. His glorious, infinite, matchless, marvelous grace that came to you. He sought you and he bought you. To quote an old gospel song. And he lives inside you now. Are you thankful for that? Or do you just take that for granted? This morning I want to transition to the Lord's Supper. Go ahead, the servers can go ahead and begin passing out the elements. I want to pray for us and then we'll, we'll take the elements. We're just going to go right into this. Make this a whole of the same same piece of the sermon. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll talk about that. Father, I pray this morning you would unstop deaf ears and open blind eyes. Because as the Samaritan woman learned, only this God is mighty to save. But he is mighty to save. And only this gospel of grace is able to save. But it is able to save. And for the, the lukewarm person, the backslider here this morning, oh God, there's mercy for them. May they run to you. Let light their hearts ablaze with this, these glorious truths this morning that Messiah has come and he's living inside them now. And give us grace always to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for this text and thank you for the clarity of your word. Bind it to our hearts. Transform us now. Prepare our hearts to receive this meal, Lord, and the nourishment it provides spiritually. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead, I'm going to talk.